You are listening to Mosaic Talk, a spoken word show about race relations in Canada. Before we begin our show, it's important to acknowledge the land that we're on. By acknowledging the land, we are respecting the Indigenous peoples, their contribution and ways of knowing, which are reflected through the stories and songs that have lived in this land for thousands of years. We would like to take this opportunity to acknowledge the traditional territories of the people of Treaty 7 region in southern Alberta, which includes the Blackfoot Confederacy, compromising of the Siksika, Pigani, and Ghana First Nations, the Sutina First Nation, and the Stony Nakoda, including the Chiniki, Bearspaw, and Wesley First Nation. The city of Calgary is also home to the Métis Nation of Alberta, Region 3. Hello and welcome to Mosaic Talk. This is a show led by Canadian Cultural Mosaic Foundation, and I'm your host, Iman Bukhari. And on this show, we talk about race relations in Canada and its various intersectionalities. Today on the show, I want to talk about domestic violence, and I want to talk with a person from a specific organization that's very focused. And why do I want to talk about domestic violence? What does it have to do with race relations or its intersectionalities? We're going to find out pretty soon. But the reality is that domestic violence is a huge issue uh, in our city, in our province, in our country, really everywhere around the world, and we need to be doing so much more. And I heard about an organization that's doing amazing stuff, so we're going to be speaking to them soon. So stick around. Today on the show, we have Maria Arshad, an advisory board member of Nissa Homes. Welcome to our show, Maria. Thank you for having me. So why don't you tell our audience about yourself? So as you mentioned, my name is Maria. And uh, I'm an advisory board member for Nissan Homes, which is actually a project of National Zakat Foundation. That's a Canadian registered charity. And so what we do there is we, um, in you know, Islam Muslims have this uh, pillar of charity. So essentially you give zakat, it's called. And uh, so we take that from Canadian Muslims and we use it for the Canadian population for different uh, poverty alleviation and reduction um, um, projects, you can say. And so one of them is Nissan Homes. Um, and I was the national manager up until uh, end of January. And I've moved on to some of their opportunities, but I'm still involved um, on the board level. And uh, prior to that, I'd just been a volunteer and uh, working with them. So it's something, you know, um, well, I don't necessarily have any sort of like a high abuse or anything like that in my past, thankfully. Having said that, I had seen it around me and... Um, Homelessness is something you, it is visible when you walk around the city sometimes. And I've had cases where just having volunteered in the community, sometimes different mosques would call me because they would have women who just shown up there at their door and they needed a place to go and they didn't know what to do. Because many times people, when they're looking for a place and they are in a dire situation of homelessness or they become homelessness or got kicked out, very few are just in that panic. They often don't know what to do and they go seek help wherever they, you know, normally go to or it's a place for them to convene. So it's, I've had cases where, you know, we had 
I had to help a woman find a place in a shelter. So things like that, just these kind of things were always visible to me. And so when the opportunity came to uh, lead the team for Nissan Homes, it was it was like right at the, at the right time for me in terms of my leadership experience and all that. And I'll talk more about that. So that's essentially a background of who I am and what I do. Yeah. Awesome. And just to uh, make clear, so what is Nissan Homes for our audience who've never heard of anything? Yeah. So Nissan Homes, it's a group of transitional homes. We have multiple uh, homes across Canada. One of them is located in Calgary that opened recently. And when I say a transitional home, it means that it's a long-term stay. So those who are not as familiar with how the shelter system works... You have emergency shelters, which could be something like the the drop-in center, which is very, I think, visible to people or they know more of. It's just a bigger facility and it's open to anyone and you have to, like, you know, find a space there every day, kind of. That's how it works. Whereas for women and children, Calgary does have really good facilities. Uh, we have dedicated shelters that are short-term stays, so about up to three weeks. And then we have long-term uh, second stage or progressive housing facilities, we call them, which typically provide other services for the women to, you know, rebuild their lives. Um, so we, so ours is kind of in the middle because we found that model to work in other places. And so far, it's been pretty good in Calgary. And so right now we have four homes. Uh, uh, there's uh, another two in Ontario and the fourth one is in um, BC, in Surrey. And this year, actually, we're looking to open another one in Edmonton, and then we'll be op- opening a third one um, in Ontario. So it's an organization that is kind of this project. It's becoming its own thing now where it's very niche and it's focusing on this, providing this religiously and culturally sensitive service to the women and children who are going who have gone through uh, who are fleeing domestic abuse or who have experienced homelessness for various reasons. 50% of our, or a little above 50% of our clients come from abusive situations, and that's the reason they end up needing uh, a place to, you know, look for to rebuild their lives, whereas the rest come from other reasons. So it could be they're newcomers, uh, it could be because of poverty, or they were already homeless for some time. Like they, sometimes, especially in summer months, we, or after summer months, we find clients who've lived in their cars for so long because they could do that in summer and then now they're looking for a place and things like that and other or they've kind of been just you can say living on their friends different friends couches and you know finally they just can't do it anymore um so it you know it isn't so visible within the community but it's something that we see a lot yeah and so you mentioned that it's very culturally and Mm -hmm. religiously kind of focused and why is that important So the main reason being is that we have to realize that everybody heals differently. And there's quite a few women that we've worked with even before we opened the homes and we saw how they wanted a facility where they didn't have to fight to make their Muslim identity or any of their cultural identity as something having to hold on to. Because what happens, it's not necessarily anybody's doing it intentionally, but just the way a lot of these facilities are designed, they they have to keep the services to the very basics. Um, and sometimes they may not take into consideration any sort of uh, limitations when it comes to uh, dietary restrictions or if it could be just privacy and it's just how the facility is set up. Again, as I said, Calgary does have really good facilities, but they're really uh, few in terms of the demand that we have just in general. Um, so there's a lot of reasons for that. So it's it's 
it's about overcrowded f existing facilities um, and then what we have seen just a lot of times they don't yet have any culturally sensitive services yet so language becomes a barrier often yes you can use google translate but then it requires these women who've gone through trauma who've gone through homelessness to now advocate for themselves right and sometimes they don't want to do that i mean just think about it like you are in this situation where you really need help and you're on the receiving end and now you have to like say okay no i need more so it becomes this really difficult position for themselves um so i mean i understand the the you know the challenges there that the facilities that we have they're not there's it's still a home like so it looks like a garden home or it's a confidential location so people don't know that it is that place but it's not necessarily that large facility but it's really catered towards these women because also when it comes to healing and providing them counseling services then you know you can offer them services that incorporate those understandings so that's also an, another important thing to not make them feel like because sometimes you know we do tend to have some ideas and thoughts where people may put their religious or their cultural beliefs as a culprit and it may not be the case in that situation so it's important to have that case by case approach and really have that understanding and nuances from cultural and religious perspective so that it's not something that they again as i said they don't have to now fight to keep that identity there right um make it more comprehensive make it easy for them to not have to just focus on their own emotional and you know psychological health or depending on of the abuse they maybe sometimes it's physical related as well that they still have to work towards and so as such this is the main reason why it exists and i mean alberta another thing to realize is that we have alberta council of women shelters and it's an association that um puts out a lot of statistics about just the conditions we have in terms of capacity within alberta for all the women and children related shelter slash transitional home slash second stage housing and in from 2016 to 2017 those that's that was the data we were looking at when we were starting the calgary home there were 22,000 women and children that were turned away in one year time so it just shows you and calgary being the largest city it just shows you that the infrastructure is so overburdened and and at times you know women and children just don't have anywhere to go um and the other thing that we found is that muslim women uh, tend to be overrepresented for different reasons i think it has to do with a lot to do with poverty and just because we're a newer community we don't have the same social support a lot of people like they are very isolated because it's just them they don't necessarily have family here and things like that so it we we've seen anywhere from 20 to 40% whereas in terms of the population like the proportions are they don't match up right like we are much less in terms of the overall population um so that's another reason to provide a service and also help the infrastructure in terms of lessening some of that burden that we see um so there's a lot of reasons that kind of come together to make this something that is a very needed service yeah and we hear about cultural competency all the time it's we hear it in everything you know yeah. even in customer service folks are always talking about training their yeah. their staff to be more culturally competent because we have such a diverse society here yeah. so how is it that our frontline service even can can get better in terms of talking to people from yeah. different cultures Absolutely. so this is definitely so important especially coming from like such a traumatizing experience you want to make sure that the person is comfortable in mm-hmm. that in that surrounding and and we have such a shortage as well so this is 
this is awesome that it's so it's so focused yeah i just wanted to add on that so what we have done uh, we have offered cultural sensitivity to trainings and we've done that with uh, one of the progressive housing uh, facilities in Calgary and it's something that we always offer because as i said we have a small facility it's not necessarily there to be able to answer to the full need we're not there yet we're still a relatively small organization but we're definitely there to help other organizations in terms of adapt their programming and what is the process of somebody needs to use the service. Yeah, so it's fairly uh straightforward in a sense that a lot of these uh non-emergency places they often have an intake process as we call it which is typically used to just ensure that the person that we're taking on um we are able to provide them the support they need. So it's about um you know normally it's a phone call that would take I would say anywhere from 45 minutes to an hour. It does sound long and lengthy, but it's important for us to go through all the different aspects of uh, their circumstances to understand what they would need uh, because we are a facility where we don't necessarily have 24/7 staff uh, we only have staff 9 to 5 Monday to Friday so it does require them our clients to be able to be quite self administered and in- independent in terms of their day to day and that's why it's important for us to go through those questions to get that and once that happens then we can you know set the time for them to move in and uh get them settled in again it depends on capacity they can just call us email us um so nisahomes.com if they just they go to the website uh, just uh, the information for Calgary is on the, like all the homes we have it on the home page and um our we have a web uh, email it's calgary@nissanhomes.com or we have a phone number it's 1888693 just mess it up <laughs> okay. uh, go on been... the website yeah go on the website go on the website yeah, yeah yeah so i'm just curious how have women kind of been hearing about the service so far like how how do vulnerable women hear about this especially if you're in that situation a lot of time you might not even be aware of So what we try to do is we try to be present in different places around the city and and as different places as possible not just community events but also just in generic uh, settings. So that's one way. The second thing what we have done is just having talked to different just like I'm speaking to you today, you know, having talked to different media outlets and just being out there. Uh if people google search we often come up so that's another thing. In addition what we have found is often it's not necessarily the person who needs support but maybe a close friend has heard about us and then they have told them so that word of mouth really helps and we try to be as present as possible and be at different uh events and uh just be present you know like and visible uh, around the community so that they know so it's not necessarily just about reaching out to our donors or anything like that but it's also being visible to those who may need support. And sometimes we can't have that conversation right there and then, but then they know about us and they can give us a call. And is there some sort of like a partnership with other shelters that kind of know about the service if they feel like they're more appropriate? Yeah, them? absolutely. So majority of our clients do come through referrals actually. So as I mentioned earlier, we have some facilities that are called emergency shelters for women and children that are uh, about 3 weeks stay, right? So typically what happens in that time is they would get them going on some of the basics, right? You know, just making sure that the documents are in order because depending on the situation and the circumstances these women have le- left behind, they, it may take them some time to get everything in order before they start. applying for income support and things like that or looking at other you know upgrading their skill set and what not so 
we hear from them. So, for example, any of these facilities would call us and they say, hey, we have a client and they really want to come to us. Like that actually reminds me of the story of our first resident that we had uh, at the Calgary location. Uh, somebody who had called us before we had opened and we were still finishing uh, finalizing like we hadn't gone beds yet for example mm-hmm. like we can't take you on if we don't have beds right uh, even though we have a location and uh, so we did the intake that I mentioned earlier and then she basically ended up having to leave her emerge because again it's a three week stay so they have to move on to another facility and she went on off to a family shelter so family means that it typically it has like males and females and children mm-hmm. and then she stayed there for some time and then in the meantime she kept calling us like are you we said okay we would be open by that time but she would just keep checking are you open yet mm-hmm. you know it just kind of gives you that understanding that there are women who already want to go to a facility like ours and we've had a really high demand and it's sadly it's unprecedented in Calgary so it's a good thing that we have the service but the fact that it's needed so much is is you know not something I'm necessarily happy about because I'd rather not mm-hmm. us having yeah. to provide this and so we've had I think last I checked was 19 women and children have gone through our service since we opened and it's only been I think 11 weeks oh. right oh. so it just shows you the demand i mean luckily calgary has a very good housing market in a sense in terms of affordability compared to other major cities in mm-hmm. canada at this point so that makes it easy that's why they can go they don't often have to stay the full three months but so these working with all of these different facilities who know about it so when we did our research and we before we starting out just to understand the situation better within calgary we talked to different facilities they were very gracious in terms of opening their doors and showing us how they do their work and what sort of things they and you know for me the most important thing during those conversations was that they were the ones who were really happy that we were doing this mm-hmm. so them having been those frontline and working with all sorts of different clients and from different backgrounds and walks of life they understood the need they really get that we need something like this right on top of that we we are you can say privately fund or just based on donor uh funds like we don't have any government fund uh funding at this point so it's important like a lot of facilities actually start out like that before they get any government funding is through like communities coming together and mm-hmm. just saying we're going to respond and answer to this need yeah mm-hmm. and you had kind of mentioned a few times that there's this growing need. I'm wondering if you have a few stats around domestic violence for our listeners who might not know what a big issue this is. Yeah, so it's it's quite large. Just, you know, it, it boggles my mind. I think it's like one in four women go through some sort of abuse. Mm-hmm. And just Alberta has the third highest rate per capita when it comes to intimate partner violence. Mm-hmm. Um so what that means is the only other two provinces that are above it typically it's our Saskatchewan and uh, Manitoba mm-hmm. but what you have to realize Alberta has a much higher population mm-hmm. so it has a lot more women who go through this right so i was looking at the numbers they were coming so close to some like some of the bigger cities in ontario and i'm just going wow. what is happening so i'm not necessarily an expert in that you know mm-hmm. to really understand what it is but just looking at those numbers it just shows that there's so our service is more reactive and i i hope that there are more services that i see which are more about preventative and just not you know mm-hmm. before with these women have to seek these services mm-hmm. um and for us it's something that i always look forward to supporting and just shows you like and you know the other thing you have to realize that 
when it comes to abuse it's not visible typically the abuse cycle the way it works or especially you know i think it's something like 80 percent of those who are in, abused in like a intimate partner relationship are women and what it is is the instigator or wh- whoever whether it's somebody from their family or an intimate partner often it's a cycle in a sense that they would have a you know like an outburst or a fight or some sort of like a beating if it's you know physical abuse or could be emotional abuse too and then you have the cycle of really like the person is being nice to you and so it's it's a very confusing time in addition to that as they go through more and more of it like the women that we work with they have that sense of self that's really eroded like they stop really trusting their own judgment they stop trusting their own ability to really be you know kind of make a conclusion about a, a situation right they're questioning what they're thinking if it's right or not um and anyone who goes through that because you're just not sure what happened if that actually happened and um so that that also so that that's why being able to leave is something important and being able to leave to safety is is more important for them because often you do see women going back right and another thing to to think about is sometimes we don't recognize the abusive patterns and i think our cultural has normalized it like i know from a cultural person like a background and different cultural uh, understandings there's also that uh, you know layer there there's different kinds of normalization depending on the behavior but even within i mean we do live in the post me too and times up movements right so we do recognize that this is something it's such a big issue where um, women have to face with it and often we're expected to just get on with our lives you know and mm-hmm. not necessarily think about like this isn't uh a behavior that isn't condoned it shouldn't be condoned right so so all of that adds up to it um and often uh, the women who we end up um working with the, there's different reasons it's not necessarily that they don't have education many of them do but it's either that they're in a city where their family isn't so for example their family could be in another part of canada which is which happens to many women so they don't have as much support like for example they recently moved to the city and then the view started like they're isolated socially for whatever reason and it could be because they're a newcomer and different reasons right mm-hmm. um or they're isolated because it's been so long that they've been abused mm-hmm. right like that's another reason people end up becoming or women end up becoming isolated so there's so many factors that add up to it um and it just all of that kind of you know just mm-hmm. um i think our general attitudes and all that like we have to from a personal pers- point of view like that's what i learned okay how can i make it so that mm-hmm. i'm better at you know just not looking at how we've normalized like try to yeah. unnormalize it like not make it okay mm-hmm. to have that kind of especially when it comes to emotional abuse yeah, yeah. well i'm glad you mentioned that because there is stigma around that as well and yeah. it, that's why it's even more important to have yeah. this place that's so focused culturally or religiously as yeah. well because there is stigma around it so when you see that there's a service that's you know focused on this and there's all these women who are yeah. working with me from perhaps a, even the same culture as me yeah yeah then yeah. you you're even more like you feel more welcomed or you feel more comfortable in that sense yeah one more thing i i wanted to mention i think another thing you have to realize is sometimes we don't realize this but a lot of times when women are going through abuse so this part of their life isn't going right and now they don't want the burden so what we have found with some muslim women they don't want the burden 
especially when the Islamophobia is on the rise around the world. They don't want the burden of like adding to that mm-hmm. belief for those who do mm-hmm. have maybe some Islamophobic um, tendencies, right? Like, so they don't want like, oh, to kind of be become that person who's like, oh, so this this is see like you you've been abused. So there is a problem, mm-hmm. right? But what you have to realize abuse doesn't have religion or you know it's it, it's we have it in all cultures and all that but just what when we provide the service we have to help them heal in a way that is more holistic for them right mm-hmm. so yeah. yeah definitely uh so thank you so much and i and i'm just wondering if you can share perhaps one or two success stories or maybe not success but you know stories of, of clients and the way that they came in and i know nissa holmes actually has an amazing facebook page because i've liked it and they often post a lot mm-hmm. of stories and lots of other things that uh, the organization is doing as well. Yeah, I mean, there's so many stories. Mm-hmm. I think one, th- I'll share two and I'll uh, I'll be quick about them. Uh, yeah. So the first one is more about just helps you understand the need for a more culturally and religiously sensitive, um, you know, services or facilities. So, for example, what happened? I had I got a call from someone who was going through abuse. She had recently moved here, having married someone. So she married somebody in Canada and she came from a country outside of Canada. And so was being abused. And it wasn't just her husband, but it was also in a sense that her in-laws were not helping the situation. They were rather making it difficult. And it was so hard for her to think about going back. Mm-hmm. Right. And she actually she told me she went back and her family back home sent her. They're like, no, you you have to go back to Canada. So it's like, you know, she didn't have that choice anymore. And then again, as I said, abuse is very isolating. So any friends or anybody she kind of gotten in touch with just because her in-laws were kind of the same social circle. Mm-hmm. Those friendships just didn't pan out you could say so she couldn't seek support so she was just calling i was talking she talked to me for like an hour like finally she could just tell her story mm-hmm. and she's like I'm, i you know she tells me about her circumstances about emotional abuse physical abuse and she's saying how i really want to leave this situation but i just can't fathom the idea that this is something i have to do like for them to just accept that this mm-hmm. is where their life has come and she's like, the only way I see myself, if I could come to Nissa Homes, okay. right? Like she doesn't want to go to any other shop. Okay. And then what ended up happening, a more severe incident happened. Police was called and the police, um, I think policemen dropped her off to another shelter um, in the area. And then she just couldn't see herself staying there. And she kept telling the staff that, no, I want to go to Nissa Homes. I want to go to Nissa Homes. And then she called us. And the lady at that shelter, she's like, I just don't understand why she, you know, basically another base. So I think that's where I saw like how in her scenario, it seemed that the police officer wasn't able to respond to her, you know, wanting to go to not wanting to go to this shelter rather than, you know, seek support through Nissan Homes or get her to be able to call and whatnot. He just it seemed that's what I was told by the staff that they, they just dropped her off. Right. And let her just stay there. And she's like, she is so scared and so intimidated right now. And so, I mean, we talked to her and then it just made me realize, you know, and helped her out and made me realize like how important the service is. 
um, and the and the situation that she was going through. Another story that I wanted to share there is um, we had a family, we had a family that crossed the border in Vancouver uh, from uh, um, states, right? Um, again, they were felt so isolated. I think they were refugees in states and they didn't want to stay there because of uh, some of the bans that happened when it came to the U- U.S. sanctioned countries. And so the border uh, police called us and they wouldn't get into a police car to go anywhere. It's a family. I think they were like, this is right when we started the home. They were like seven children and it was raining. They had nothing with them. So it was such a, like when the staff de- described this story to me, like I could see how jarring that story was for them because they came with like only the clothes on their back which are soaked right so we had clothes for some but not for all so we would literally they would literally take the shirt and put them in the dryer and then like dry and give it back to them and and it just showed you like and then for them to like the only reason again in that scenario the fact that our staff spoke arabic also helped and to be able to talk to them and really understand that and so that's what i mean so these are just two stories we have like close to 400 people we've helped since we've been operating and now that we are going to have more locations it's going to even grow sadly but i've just shared two stories and it just gives you an idea of like you know what people have gone through and when they're seeking that support yeah so thank you so much maria for coming on our show and sharing these important stories as well as this important service thank you so much for having me All right, listeners, thank you so much for tuning in to yet another episode of Mosaic Talk. This is your host, Iman Bukhari, and I just want to say thank you again to CJSW for providing us the space on the airwaves to talk about these important issues. Because of you, we're able to get the word across and have these important conversations. So thank you, CJSW, and thank you to our listeners. I will catch you next time.